Look, our brains are great at lots of things, but remembering passwords is not one of them, especially not secure passwords. Let's free our brains from being password managers and get something way better. 1Password. One 1Password one keeps everything private and in sync across multiple devices. 1Password can't see the passwords or sensitive information you store in 1Password, so they can't use it, share it, or sell it, and neither can anyone else. I've been using 1Password for about 10 years now, and it's made my life so much easier, especially using it with Touch ID and Face ID. It's the first thing I install on any new phone, computer, or tablet I'm using for myself or my family. And all you have to remember is one strong account password that protects everything else your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. And I love that something I use to save me so many hours, I can't even count them all, is something you can try too. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash beyond for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash beyond. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com slash beyond. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Juliette Funt. She is the author of the book, A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. And I think we all want those things, right? We also could all take a break, more than a minute if we can. And in this conversation, that's exactly what we talk about, is we talk about how busyness is killing us, and that the solution to that is to take a strategic pause. Not only the importance of that, but the actual how to do it, the different types of pauses, and how to start putting those times of strategic pausing, and what to do in those pauses, into your schedule home life, work life, all of that. So I'll just get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Juliet Funt. Well, this week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Juliet Funt. She's here to talk about her new book, A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Business, and Do Your Best Work. Juliet, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So this is going to be awesome because taking time to think is huge when it comes to productivity because one, it helps you figure out what it is you need to do. Two, you take a break, which a lot of people forget to do and it's overrated. Actually, sorry, let me say underrated. Overrated Correct, yes. would mean everybody's <laughs> doing it. No, nobody's doing it almost. And that's the problem, obviously. And so this book is squarely in the wheelhouse of this podcast. So in this book, though, you you talk about busyness, which is something we're all aware of. And you're talking about that that busyness is costing businesses millions of dollars every year. So I wonder if you could maybe paint the picture of some context as to why you say that and how you came to land on this book. Yeah, it is so timely. And we can talk more about the unique window of time that we're in. But to paint the picture that you asked, 
every morning all over the world, people wake up with a little spark of contribution. They want to bring creativity, enthusiasm, dedication to what they're caring about at work. And they walk in the front door or they sit down at their entrepreneurial desk. And immediately that beautiful little spark is just extinguished by an avalanche of emails and meetings and decks and reports and paperwork. And not only can't they barely have a minute to breathe, but that busyness and that nonsense work separates them from meaning in the things that they're touching. So all day long they grind through and then they look up at the ceiling at five o'clock and say, what did I get done today? So, I mean, you asked me about the financial part and we'll get to it in a second, but the human part is really what moves me and how much that busyness is crushing good people's spirits, especially right now in this post or end pandemic period. So that that sense of the busyness interrupting is a cost, but there are also very significant financial costs. And we know this because in our work with our clients, one of the things that we do for them is we quantify that busyness. And it's it's very simple math. It's math that an eight-year-old could do. You just take the value of an hour, you take someone's salary and divide it up and figure out what an hour is worth. And then you ask them some self-reporting questions about when are you doing work that's kind of nonsensical emails, CCs, garbage work where you're in a meeting and you're playing hangman. Where When are you just not contributing or benefiting from the work that you're doing? And then all you do is you take the wasted hours times the value of an hour and you come up with numbers. So our magic number, we call it the million for 50 numbers that most companies spend about a million dollars annually on unnecessary work for every 50 people in an organization. And if you're a leader listening, that should be stepping on a Lego level jarring pain. And yet there's this profound and puzzling complacency. We just keep working this way. And even though things have gotten worse now, burnout is 52%. The workday has gotten two and a half hours longer. Meetings have more than doubled. Strangely, we still kind of just tolerate and complain. And, and this is just an endlessly fascinating part for me of our current situation. So you're proposing, though, that the solution to all this busyness is not to double down and do more work, but instead to take a strategic pause or or multiple, really, strategic mm. pauses. It's not about, oh, I paused one time and I'm, I'm done. How did you arrive at this solution of the strategic pause? It's 20 years work, so we should probably break down kind of the foundational base of the work before we get into the nitty gritty. The best thing to keep in mind to understand this philosophy is making a fire. I grew up in Manhattan, so this is not something that I knew a lot about. You don't make a fire as a city kid. I'm really good at hailing a cab in the rain and I can find good souvlaki, but I, I, you know, there's certain things you don't learn. Eventually somebody taught me and what they taught me is it's about the ingredients that you put into the fire and how you put them in. So you want something dry, dry pine needles, newspaper. You want maybe a little of that industrial fire starter, good wood. But if you forget one critical ingredient, your fire will never, ever ignite. And that critical ingredient is space. It's the oxygenating passages in between the materials that let the flames begin to ignite and blossom. And that foundational law of nature is true for us as well in the way that we live and the way that we work, but we chronically forget. We forget ah, that we need oxygenating space in between our thoughts, our actions, 
our meetings, our to-dos. And when that happens, everything is better. We call this element, this missing element, white space, because part of the derivation of the name came from years ago when we're working with executives, you'd look at their calendar. And if you looked at a day and there were actually white spaces, there was white on the paper calendar you knew that that day was going to have unique possibility. And you knew that that day could go anywhere you wanted it to go because of the space. And that is what we teach people to do. That's what the book is all about. So the way that you access white space is you take a strategic pause. And when you pause, there is this cessation of movement, the cessation of busyness, and this beautiful nurturing element flows in and then can be used in so many ways to amplify what we do. I love it. I I almost took a pause right there just to keep thinking. (laughs) Take it in. Yeah. Well, and so traditionally, when we've come near to this topic, let me put it that way, because we've Mm -hmm. never really Mm -hmm. talked about this specific type of taking a pause and, and, Mm. and all the benefits as well as the what, the why, the how. But when we've come near it, we've sort of said, well, calendar block, block out time on your calendar that nobody else can take so that you can do some of that pausing where you're either doing nothing and allowing your brain to either take a break or, you know, literally focus in on maybe one thing or just thinking mm-hmm. or or let non-activity be part of your workday, those kinds of things. Those are what my brain first serves up as possible different types of pauses. But what are all the different? Yeah, let's just throw this out there. What are all the different types of pauses? <laughs> Yes, there's only one type of pause. A pause is a cessation of activity, but there are four uses of that time that business people can use to their advantage. The pause can be used to recuperate. And that's really what people think of first. When they think of a pause, they think, I want to rest. I need to reboot my exhausted brain and body. Maybe they think of an analogy like an athlete who does 10 reps and then takes a break so he can do the next 10 reps as well. And all of those recuperative qualities are important. They are what people think of as white space at first, but they are only 25% of the utility of this tool. You can also use a pause to reflect. This is when you gain objectivity about the work that you're doing. You can use a pause to reduce, which is about the topic we started with, where you use a pause to step back from unnecessary work and you strategically reduce it. Or you can use a pause to construct. And this is hatching the next great game-changing aha idea or allowing creativity to come in. And that's where things get really juicy in business is we want to understand that this thinking time is not just to rest and recover. It's to create a landscape where we are free from the tethering to the next task and the tethering to the next to-do so that our minds can be of utility to our work. Interesting. Okay. So then there's not different types of pauses per se. There's different uses of a pause, the four different ones that you named. Yeah. And if you look at, if you show me a person who's achieved spectacular things anywhere, they take this kind of transitional time and thinking time for granted. In the book, we talk about Jeff Weiner of LinkedIn, who schedules nothing on his calendar. Phil Knight of Nike had a chair in his living room and it was the daydreaming chair. And the only thing that he did in that chair was daydreaming. And there we go on and on, John Cleese and Jack Welch. And so that utility of the time 
is commonly used by people who value it. And what we're trying to do is help a regular person at a regular desk who feels like they don't deserve to even just take a minute to understand that not only is it their right, but it is their obligation if they really want to be superb at work. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the chair because a lot of people, they'll think I'm taking a pause to free up my head space, but physical Mm -hmm. space may also play a part of that because if somebody is, you know, if they're sitting at their desk where they always are in constant Mm. motion, it might be a better idea, right? To step away, even just outside to, you know, hey, this is what the the smoke break was for in some senses, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, but to be able to do something like that where they physically change the atmosphere, the surroundings so that they aren't triggered by the next work thing accidentally or otherwise, although I'm sure that there's ways to, you know, turn off all notifications, go into do not disturb mode, airplane mode, pretend you're in the airplane and and do that. But how do you see physical space playing into taking the pause? Yeah, I love, is it Steelcase? Is that the name of the furniture company that does all the mod office furniture? I think it might be Steelcase. They had these pods where they wrapped a worker in this white, beautiful fabric pod. So they had this actual literal white space they can think in. I think you're really onto something about the physicality. Not everybody can walk away like that. So they might have to rely on things like eyelids to close and block out what's around them, or even just turning 90 degrees or 180 degrees away from the roaring torrent of your desk and your computer to just face somewhere else, I think would be a great baby step. But yes, any proximity to nature, obviously spectacular amplification of the pause. If you can look out a window at a tree, if you can breathe fresh air, not everybody can do that, especially in the interstitial way that we teach them to take little sips. We're not always taking a 30 minute pause or a 15 minute pause. If you take three seconds or five seconds, it's a little hard to change your physical environment. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people, or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting 
checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash beyond. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So maybe what's the minimum dose, if we were to term it that way, that you think makes at least some difference possible? Because a lot of people are going to say, I don't have time to take a pause, which is just so ridiculous. So you have to look for it when you can get it. In the book, we talk about the Emergency Nurses Association. If you think of an ER nurse in an environment where every single thing is life or death, no more chances kind of urgency, could those people take a pause? And I loved this conversation that I had with them over the time that I was working where they found that, yes, they could because hand washing takes 20 seconds. That's a beautiful time Mm. for a mental vacation. They're walking down on a lot, a lot of hallways all day long, but only their feet are really busy and their minds could take a little pause. So we have to use creativity to put the pause in where we can. And most people start with a very, very simple tool that we call the wedge. It's the easiest place to start and it's where those micro pauses, if you will, come in. So the wedge, if you could see me, you'd imagine my fingers are a pyramid. You imagine a wedge, literally wedging apart two things in the day. The wedge is a little sip of white space that we take to separate and uncompress two things that previously would have been connected. And to answer your question, it could be a second, it could be three seconds, it could be a half a second, or it could be in a, you know, a much more extended period of time. You might use a wedge in between, simplest one would be a meeting and a meeting, that's maybe five or 10 minutes. But maybe you use a wedge between getting an email that fries you, it kind of jolts you with some sort of emotion or worry and responding or between a question and an answer or between turning your key off at night and walking in the front door to really make that transition from work self to self self. There are so many places where we can interlace space without the weighty obligation of time blocking it on a formal calendar, half an hour thinking block, which, which is really, really hard for people to hold. I'm not against those. I mean, there's a story in the book of this wonderful guy named Tony Kalanka, who I just love. He's 6'6", six, six, I'm 5'4", so I stand next to him like standing next to a redwood. And he looks down and he's so warm and sweet, but he works in live events. And live events is, he describes it as a business that will eat your life if you let it. 80 shows a year, trade shows, crazy amounts, thousands of people running through. So he was doing a... um proposal for a contract that was worth millions and millions of dollars to his company. And his first response was what busy people often do. He said, I'll just sally it, which is same as last year. 
take last year's proposal, clean it up, change the date. But he said, no, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to think about this. And he scheduled himself six blocks of thinking time, half hour to two hour blocks. He included other people, he pondered, and he created the spectacular solution that saved and earned the company millions of dollars. So anywhere from one second in between you answer a question all the way up to Tony Kalanka's two hour grand spaces, we take what we can and we dance around the room. That makes sense. And I think that, you know, starting, in other words, just starting doing any kind of pausing and finding that you can pause is going to be the, one of the first, you know, most important kind of empowering, you know, it's 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 when you first get introduced to an idea and you're like, oh, I don't know about this. And then you try it out and you're like, maybe. And then you get into yeah. practice with it and it becomes almost muscle memory and a, a normal routine. I mean, I would almost say, though, that there's this precursor step of first, you have to believe that thinking has value. Mm, if, yeah. you, if you can't cross that simple boundary of what's the difference between activity and productivity? And and do I only get points in corporate heaven for just sweating and running all day long? Or do I actually want to produce something of value? That's a really, really important gate. Right after that gate, if you want to play with it, I can give your listeners some super duper training wheels, baby steps to try. You can start with when you wake up in the morning between opening your eyes and getting up. Probably my favorite wedge of white space of the whole day, just to lie there for a second and say, what is this day going to hold? How am I going to bring myself to it? What do I need to let go of from yesterday? It's beautiful to start your day with thoughtfulness. And then next you go into your day. And now what you're going to look for in your baby steps is you're going to look for forced white space that you don't anticipate or cause that your computer is rebooting. You're waiting in line. Maybe you're a New Yorker who needs to talk to a Southerner and just everything slows way down. And so you're looking for places where previously you would be forced to pause and probably reached for your phone to fill it and just say instead, no, I'm just going to take this pause. I'm just going to watch that rainbow spinning ball like it was the best thing in my day and take the forced white space. And from there, those baby steps can then move into the office. I would say most people consider the transition time between meetings to be the most foundational professional baby step of just looking at your calendar and saying, here's the new rule. Never let the colors touch. Never let meeting after meeting after meeting be there without little slices, little stripes of white. So there are all sorts of small and accessible ways to play with the tool before you get into the the big wild ride of of, of hours of thinking time. I, I know that it's digital, but I love that it's a literal digital white space on your calendar mm-hmm. in between the colors of all the meetings. And that kind of just dawned on me as you said it. I think that's an amazing way to look at this. Yeah, your, your meeting calendar should look like a Benetton shirt. It should be <laughs> stripe, color, stripe, color, stripe, color. We have a term in the book we call hall time, because if you remember when you're in high school, there was this bell, two bells, you had a bell to stand up, then you walk, 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 and then a bell to sit down. And that assumed you needed to actually move from one place to another. So we need that hall time at work in corporations, especially in this Zoomaholic, maniacal, all day, all Zoom world. 
we absolutely need transition time, not only to recuperate and maybe have the human pleasure of a bio break, but also because if you don't do that, you're not even having time to think about what happened in the meeting before. What went well? What should I learn? What should I write down? Then what about the meeting coming? What about how do I prepare? Who am I bringing as myself to this next interaction? Who's the person I'm sitting down with and what do they care about? There are myriad things that must occur in that fertile transitional time in order for your meetings to actually be effective. Well, and I, I think one of the other things that, that you brought up was the, what was the term you used again? Forced. Forced white space. Forced when the world space. makes you wait. Yes. When you're waiting in line, take the pause. Take Say thank you, line, for slowing me down. Don't reach for the, if you reach for the phone, then you break the magic. But if you take it when it's given to you, it's a very, it's, it's a, like a little training wheels, baby step approach. Well, that's the thing I was going to get at is right now, technology, smartphone specifically, I'm heading towards, although it's not the only culprit. Yeah. We have trained ourselves to pick that up as soon as we walk out the door of a meeting or as soon as or or while we're in the Zoom meeting, the phone is just sitting there. And if I grab it and hold it a certain way, nobody can see that I'm looking at it because I'm still kind (laughs) of looking at my screen and so on and so on. But we've trained ourselves as well as been trained by everybody else going along with it, that that's the way things are done, that there is no stopping and pausing. It's forced urgency of every next thing that's happening. So, yeah, we, we have no idea what to do with it. If you, you're so right that it's so ingrained. And if we do it, when you start people on the early stages of white space, you say, just give yourself five minutes. They have absolutely no idea what to do during that time. And we have to teach them, okay, it's not meditation. It's not mindfulness. Meditation and mindfulness have instruction. So they say, don't follow a thought, come back to breath, or don't follow a thought, come back to physical sensation. In white space, we want to say, follow any thought you want. You you want, uh, we say a lot, meditation and mindfulness is like having a dog on a leash and it wanders off and you say, heal. White space is like having the dog off the leash and you say, run through the park. So when you have an impulse or a thought, you follow it and you guiltlessly have that time. But it is so unfamiliar and the phone will be the first place you go every single time to fill that time. If you can just not do that, if you can just not fill with the phone, you've taken a gigantic leap toward the practice of white space. Yeah. And and we feel like we have to, though, because we've, quote, only got so much time in a day and we've got to get Mm. everything crammed in that has to get done. And inevitably, we bump stuff from today's to do list over to tomorrow's to do list. And so I better grab that phone and make sure that I answer those emails while I'm walking in my, quote, hall time to the next thing. But Mm -hmm. I think that if we were considering what you call the four thieves that that rob all this time from us at work. Mm. You know, if we were to identify those thieves and then also figure out how to defeat them, what's your insight on that at least? Because I think that's the key is like we, we've got to identify why we feel like we have no time at all anyway and be able to maybe free that time up to then say, okay, I don't have to just take the forced time. I can force the time myself. It's such a pleasure to let people know that this is so changeable once we start to understand the sources. And so you talked about the thieves. We should probably review them. Understanding the thieves is a really big key to decrapifying this workflow that we were talking about, this busyness, this unnecessary work. And so I'll I'll review them for you. The important thing to understand about the thieves is that they are assets 
that have run amok. We studied busy work and we tried to figure out why were people so busy and we found four things, but they surprised us because they were positive things that had simply overgrown. They were not negative things. So the thieves of time are drive, excellence, information, and activity. And you wouldn't hire anybody who didn't have drive in a, in a quest for excellence and who was active and informed. But when they overgrow, then drive starts to become overdrive. Excellence starts to become perfectionism. Information becomes information overload. And the tendency for activity just becomes frenzy. And so they create this pace and pressure where we're mindless, where we lose control, and where we do enormous amounts of unnecessary work to serve them. And so I think the thieves, they're so wonderful for people to keep in mind. One of my favorite, favorite thief stories is a gentleman named Steve Martin. He was a chief data scientist at Microsoft, incredibly smart guy. He had a sense that the thief of information was dominating his workflow, but he he hadn't really come to terms with how to change it. The sales department came to him and said they needed 22 pieces of collateral in order to do their next round of sales. And they wanted him to build all these decks and infographics and reports. And he kind of had a sense that it was not really tactically necessary, that it was just mindless, busy work driven by the thief of information. So he did this prank that is one of my favorite pranks of all time. And he made the 22 pieces, but inside every one of them, he embedded not in a sneaky place, not in the footer, but just right in the middle of a page. He embedded a note that said, if you're actually reading this, email me and I'll send you a $50 Amazon gift certificate. And in a year of using the collateral, no one ever wrote him, including the committee. When they went back to say next year that they needed more stuff, he was able to say to them, even you guys missed these offers. You never even read what you asked me to build. And that that was a moment for him where he became more aware of his choices. But it can be a, a comic moment of objectivity for all of us when we realize we're just generating stuff without questioning its tactical necessity or its value. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> I can't believe no one, no one right. took him up on that. Wow. Because how much stuff do we build where it just sits around and we go, yay, I built that press release investors deck. And it just, it's not opened by busy people who are too busy to open anything in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the other things that kind of ties into this is this term that you use, which is hallucinated urgency. And I couldn't help, but when I heard that, I couldn't help but <laughs> jump to the Eisenhower matrix where you've got you know, four quadrants, you've got two lines, one that's urgency, where it's urgent and non-urgent, and then important and non-important, and how hallucinated urgency plays into that. Because how are you going to make proper decisions if everything is hallucinated <laughs> into urgency, right? Right, right. And it's like we're all a little high, you know, we're just addled. And if you didn't know that someone slipped something into your drink and you saw a dragon coming out of the stereo, then you'd have to really you'd have to really rethink, you know, what was happening. And this we don't know that we are concocting urgency where it just doesn't exist. We're so used to this kind of pen clicking, toe tapping, moving, fasting, going, going. And because we can't all slow down and because we mirror other people's pace and because we feel that there's some sort of professional value around this hyperactivity, this all swirls together to make things very, very inefficient. And there are ways to do this differently. It's easiest to do it as a team or a group or even as a duo to be able to say to each other, just to have the term hallucinated urgency begins to break the spell 
because now we understand that there are, if, if there's such a thing as hallucinated urgency, there must be such a thing as true urgency. And now there are two categories that something can fit into. And so that starts to give people the facility to question. Yeah, because if you can't distinguish between what's hallucinated, like you said, the dragon or not, then you can't really make a proper decision, even if you've paused. Right. But pausing, you'd be surprised at how smart people are when lucidity can return into their brain. If you pause and you look at something and you say to yourself, how urgent is this? You will have enormous amounts more clarity than if you just act first and think later. So just that thoughtfulness is is a beginning. There's a lot of ways that people can start defeating hallucinated urgency purposefully. The most important one, and this is just hilarious how little this happens, is to ask, when is this due? Or when's the deadline on this? It it is spectacular how frequent people receive something and then they feel this valor of here I go and they just dive on in. And there's never a moment where people just simply say, is this a week? Is it a month? Is it a day? So that simple question can begin us. And then that question of what would happen if I waited has been a fascinating unfolding question to me because in the beginning, what would happen if I waited when you ask that of yourself? It's, it sounds like a question that is usually used to look for risk. What would happen if I waited makes you think about would I get in trouble? Would a client be disappointed? But actually what would happen if I waited can actually be a question that's looking for benefit. Would my team be calmer? Would my employee be able to actually have the rest of their weekend because I waited to ask a question on a Sunday? Would a major client get a better deliverable because I waited to add a new project to a busy team's plate? What would happen if I waited? It makes you think like you're looking for trouble, but it actually can lead you toward gold. Yeah, in a way, you're not asking, can I procrastinate on this or can I put this off? It's more, what's the correct timing of whatever this is fill in the blank right what's the timing that serves my business in all ways yeah yeah that's great that's a great way to put it you also talk about there being three categories of urgency i wonder if you'd maybe explain that and tie that into you know being able to distinguish between again the the real urgent and the illusion of urgent Right. So this can help so much as we start to go, okay, first we have the term hallucinated urgency. Then we begin to understand that questioning is our friend. When's it due? What's the deadline? What would happen if I waited? But now we also want to be able to segment the things that we're looking at into urgency categories. We think that there are three. Things can be not time sensitive. It's so funny that we almost pretend that that one doesn't even exist. But yes, something can be good to do, but not time sensitive. There can be things that are tactically time sensitive. And this is where speed to response is tied to a business result. This is, I have 24 hours to get something into a client and they care about it and there is a deadline. Okay, that is tactically time sensitive. But then the interesting one is things can also be emotionally time sensitive. And emotionally time sensitive means that the craving for getting it done or finding the information comes from a different part of us, from anxiety or control or curiosity. So let's say you're a sales leader and you all of a sudden you're sitting around and go, what happened with the Dell account? I don't remember hearing anything. We were, that was so promising and nothing happened of it. You as a leader probably right at that moment want to ping the VP in charge of the Dell account and say, hey, what's up with Dell? But there's nothing tactically time sensitive about that. You have a sales update coming probably at the end of the week. You're going to find out about Dell if you ask then. You can just look it up. But it's that I am curious and I want to know right now that is the emotional part of it. And we subject people to a lot of frenzy for no reason based on that. 
that's an excellent point. I love that you're you're reframing it that way. I know that this doesn't just play out though in terms of our own selves, but obviously business is done in terms of relationships and teams inside of an organization, even if it's small teams. How do we get others on the same page as to one, the benefit, but two, the actual execution of white space? It's a question that's most exciting right at this moment. We have an unprecedented opportunity as teams to change things right now, because right now work is being redesigned as hybrid is designed and people go back. So all the car parts are taken out of the engine. They're lying on the driveway. We can clean them and look at them and replace them. And we have this spectacular, I would say almost a blank page to write on about how do we want work to be? And we have an opportunity right now to also let go of things that have been driving us crazy for decades. So this beautiful opportunity is when teams can come together and say, what are all the things that drive us crazy in the topics that we're talking about? And are we ready to change them? And so the way that teams begin is by having bold and honest conversations about things that they've never talked about before. How much meaning do you feel in your day? Do you feel engaged by touching work that creatively stimulates you? What percentage of your, going back to that waste topic that we talked about, to talk about how much of the day are you just deleting CC, FYI, reply to all and wishing it wasn't so, but doing nothing about it? How many meetings are you sitting in where you know you're doing nothing productive, but you're afraid to ask not to come? These are the conversations that smart teams will have right now in this beautiful window of opportunity, and they can begin to do things differently. If there are leaders listening, this kind of transition is very, very permission-based. So the most effective and quick pill is for senior executives to start thinking and acting this way, modeling the behavior, copying to where they do unnecessary work, taking disconnected vacations, anything they can do to be signaling the value of the pause. But even if you're not a senior leader, you can start right in your own domain by utilizing some of the simple techniques that we've talked about, the wedge, the three categories of urgency, beginning to do quantification, sort of get a little sense of how waste work is costing you money and maybe floating that conversation up the chain. There are lots of things that individuals can do at their desk to start moving toward team discussions. Excellent. What about, I know this is something that we weren't necessarily going to talk about, but I know it's in in place here is obviously white space isn't just beneficial for us at work. It can be a huge deal when it comes to our personal life or especially our home life, our family life. What are some of the ways that we can pause at home? Mm, I'm really happy that that's even in your radar because it's one of my most passionate parts of this work. In fact, you're not supposed to love a chapter most, but I love chapter 11. (laughs) It's like picking between your kids. But the last chapter on taking this home, to me, it's like all the rest of the work is just a Trojan horse to say, don't miss your life. Take a pause and drink in the beauty of your children or your hobbies or a view or a warm tea in your hands when they're cold. When we learn to take a pause, everything in our home life becomes more colorful and beautiful. And we also give permission to all the people that we live with. Maybe there's little people in your home and you've taken busyness home on your shoes from the office and now they run from their 97,000 after school activities, to homework, to dinner, to bed without ever taking a pause. We want to raise a generation of people who are not afraid of open time. And so from a modeling perspective, it's just as important to be able to interlace space into a day at home is so important 
for the ability of families to connect. And as you brought up, we're probably going to circle back around to the biggest barrier to that, which is even the same in the office, which is the screen, that tendency to be sitting around together as a family with our screens in front of us and separating us, I would say probably is the biggest barrier to white space. When you have a situation where the internet goes out or where somebody's device dies and you have to just look at each other and go, oh, hey, how have you been for the last four and a half years? You know, you realize instantly that that screen is a barrier. So maybe one tip that we could play with here is there's a technique in the book called phone narration. That's one of my favorites to share about white space at home. The idea is that we tend to chronically pick up the phone and we break the interpersonal connection without even knowing it. Sometimes we just mindlessly are on these devices. Nobody knows where you are, what you're doing, when you'll be back. So a wonderful thing to play with at home is called phone narration. You just loosely narrate your activities on your phone. You'll say something like, oh, I'm just pulling up maps to go to the lake or I'm just getting back to grandma, or hang on, my boss just needs something, it'll take two minutes and I'll be back to you. And when you narrate, you answer the unspoken question in your loved one's mind of where the heck did he go and when will he be back? And you'll notice if you start doing this at home, then everybody in your house is going to start saying, can you narrate, please, when you just drift mindlessly off into the phone? So that's one of my favorite ones for families to play with. I love that. And even just having a place to park devices, having rituals and rhythms at home in terms of when you wake up and when you're allowed to actually grab a device Mm -hmm. that is training you to use all that white space up without any real benefit coming out of it. Ah, man, I identify with this because I'm, you know, part of a family that all four of us have issues with this at times. And sometimes I think I'm the one who's being evolved, but not always true. It's everybody so. <laughs> does. It's designed to to lure you in. And and there but there are other places too. The screen is not the only culprit. The worship of more and the feeling that the more we do, the more points we get is a template that follows us home. And we plan our children's lives according to it. We plan our social lives according to it. We end up driving 45 minutes each way to go to a retirement party for someone that we marginally like because we just don't know how to say no to things. So that sense of the false God of more When defeated at home, when we start saying, what if our kids had two days a week of just nothing after school? And what if we had a white space weekend where once a month there was absolutely nothing on the calendar and we could just pour a glass of orange juice and make it up as we went along? It will feel unfamiliar and you'll have to fight the teenagers. But when you put that space back in, connection blossoms and you don't end up missing all the remarkable, unremarkable moments of being together. Yes. Oh, I love it. We've got so much more that we could talk about in the book, but obviously my time and our time is running down to an end. And I want to close this out by saying there is so much more, so much more in the book than we've been even able to touch on in this conversation. And I want to direct people over to where to grab it because it's out now. And I assume, because I've seen a lot of celebratory stuff, it's doing really well. So yeah, yeah. it's been a really big week and we were nominated for the next big idea club, which is a wonderful, wonderful consortium project with Adam Grant and Malcolm Gladwell, Dan Pink and Susan Kane. And we're a couple days out of launch. So it's pretty exciting time for me in my first book. If people want to explore the book and learn more about it, they can go to Julie 
julietfunt.com. And even if they don't want to buy the book, if you want to wait till it's in the library, you can go on that website. You can take a test called the busyness test. And in it, you'll be able to take a look at your daily habits and tendencies and find out where they're leading you to unnecessary busyness and how to break that cycle. Excellent. That is a great place to direct people to. And I'm going to link up to that and everything else we mentioned in the show notes for this episode. Juliet, I just can't wait to see what your next book. I know I don't want (laughs) to throw that on you during this book launch week, but I just can't wait to see what you do next. So open invitation. Let me know when that's ready and we'll dive in even further yet again. Sounds great. I look forward to it. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. And I hope that you got something great out of this. I hope that you took time to pause while listening to this show to think about pausing, having strategic pause times, and what the best way that you can integrate those into your life is going to be. Because I think now you know the importance of it and some of the first steps. Not only that, but you can also pick up Juliet's book and dive deeper into this topic. If you found this conversation helpful, and I hope you did, would you do me the favor of sharing this with somebody that you know needs to hear it by hitting the share button in your podcast player app of choice that you're listening to this right now, or head on over to the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com and share it from there. Again, thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next episode. Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.